lake is open, and that's good news for everybody planning on the fishing opener one week and a little one week and a day away. And that's that's important. And I actually got to watch the ice leave yesterday. And one in the morning, there was lots and lots of ice. By three o'clock in the afternoon, it was gone, which is uh, it's kind of amazing considering about a week ago. Eric took a four-wheeler from here at the cabin all the way up about five, four miles to the other end of the lake. But if you could gaze around, uh, it's it's not a, a normal cabin right now because there is camouflage clothing from top to bottom. There are turkey decoys in the corner. <laughs> there are four dogs wandering around, two golden retrievers and two Britneys. Uh, the the table the the dining room table is f- cluttered with assorted paraphernalia, including shotgun shells and oh, it's uh, sunglasses and hats and it's uh, it's definitely a a hunting cabin right now, and it will switch over completely in less than a week to one of a fishing mode, and it's. Uh, I just wish everybody could be here because it's absolutely delightful. Well, Bill, I did hear that you've got uh, you know crappies maybe on ice right now too, so it's a little little cast and blast uh, sort of a day. Well, they they are they are being frozen as we speak, Mike. They are cleaned, <laughs> not by me, and they are bagged. And there aren't a lot of them, but I'm telling you what, they're dandies. They've got to be 15 inches each, and Ooh. there's. Uh, there aren't there aren't a whole lot of them, but what, what's there was fun to catch. I am told because I didn't get a bite. What are you on that schneid again? Uh, you know that's okay. That's kind of the role I play. I I had a bobber out bouncing around in the wind. And today it was Danielle's day because she bagged a turkey, she caught some crappies, and it was just an all around good day. And Danielle is. My soon-to-be next August daughter-in-law, Eric's spouse. So the three of us are here together right now. Chad was here last weekend, and he bagged a bird, and I filled my tag, and uh, Eric has yet to fill his tag. But, Mike, I, I think the lesson that I would like to leave with people are not the hero shots and not the the pictures holding the birds of successful hunters, it uh, it was probably more realistic than anything you see on television, more realistic than some of the things you read when people are trying to teach you how to call and tell you this is what you need to do. I, I took a shot at a bird a week ago, and or last Friday, and I tipped the bird over. I thought he was dead. I stood up off the little turkey chair that I use sitting in brush. And a bird got up, and I knocked him over again. I thought hard as could be, aiming right for the head again. And he got up again, and he ran like the wind. And I, uh, I sat down dejectedly. I was very, very upset with me. And I went through my mind a million, um, thousands of times what I could have done differently. And I think anybody that gets in the field, their goal is to fill a tag. Realistically, it doesn't always happen. And that is 
this that that is something that I dread when I'm in the field. I'm hunting pheasants, ducks, deer, turkeys. That's one of the things that I dread more than probably any other is letting a wounded animal go. And I looked for hours. I waited a couple hours like a person would with a deer. And I looked for a couple hours tromping back and forth, and I couldn't find hide or hair of it. And it uh, it's just a, it's a tough deal, but very seldom, Mike, do I hear people talking about that part of the hunt. Oh, I've, I've been there. Uh, uh, well, as a matter of fact, uh, I swung and missed on opening morning of the A season with you know a foot of snow on the ground, and I got impatient. Uh, that bird was coming in. He was a big boss Tom. And uh, I saw him at uh, you know sixty and seventy yards. Then he's fifty. Then he's forty-five. And I'm I'm going. Oh, I can take the shot. And it was you know right at that six twenty time. It's the, it was legal shooting, but I don't think I did a very good job. Uh, you know, lining up my beads. And that bird got up and uh, said goodbye. And my my hopes and dreams kind of just went right over the edge too. But you know you have to be patient. Those things are going to happen if they're not then uh, you don't have that same passion uh, that uh, that we do because you have to see these things and have these things happen to you. It makes you a better hunter in the end, and in the, in the end it did make you a better hunter, didn't it? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, again, it's something that I don't dwell on as a person, but I thought it was... I had kind of a responsibility to people because I know I've I've gotten tweets and texts from people that listen to us talk and they wanted to start turkey hunting and how do I do it and this, that, and the other thing. And and what we see on social media and what we see on TV, especially television, is not realistic in my opinion because the deer hunts that are done on TV, the turkey hunts that are done just for television, there's a lot of downtime that you don't see, a lot of the waiting time and a, a lot of the... Scouting time. I learned a valuable lesson a few years ago from Eric, and it happens again today, this this time, this hunt. The value of scouting and the the being on the move with spotting scope or binoculars and looking for birds. And But when you're actually in the field, and Danielle and I were talking about that tonight, the things that, that are ancillary that you can see, the ducks winging over, the sounds in the field in the morning where the sun begins to come up and the life in the woods and on the prairies begin to come alive again. Those are things that if you spend all your days in the Twin Cities, in the, in the urban in the downtown, you never hear that. You never can develop an appreciation for it. And I'm just sitting here to say that's important and that's special. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Bill. The, uh, that opening A season up in the Mille Lacs area where I was at, I, I I've been around this earth, you know, almost sixty four years now. I had never had in my life so many close encounters with turkeys, with trumpeter swans. We saw deer. We had one of my guys I was hunting with. Uh, the deer ran past me, stopped within inches of his reach. And you just, these things don't happen unless you're out there. In fact, I even had two roosters uh, that I saw out there. And, and uh, Bob, you'll love this. There was a, it was a rooster fight. We were watching two roosters going at it. It was incredible. But you don't see these things unless you're out there. Yeah. And 
as I was as I was lamenting the fact I had I had wounded a bird and had, was not able to find it yet, I sat down in my chair in the brush, and I'm thinking about this, and it, it wasn't five ten minutes at the most. I looked, I saw movement over my shoulder, turned my head, and there, less than three feet away, was a hen walking, <laughs> and we were eye to eye. And I had sunglasses on, so she couldn't see me blink. And I, I, I watched that bird for a good 30 minutes. It walked around the bush looking at me and knowing that I shouldn't have been there. Something wasn't there. But she kept putting and purring and putting and purring. And the ability to hear that live was really special. And I, I got my phone up very slowly and moved it and took all these videos of her. And the wind was howling. And it was really very memorable, and it was something I'll not forget. And those are some of the things that come into play, too. And that's that's important for, that's part of hunting, and it's important, too. Yeah, I've only been turkey hunting about 20 years, and, and uh, my mentor was a good friend of ours, Joel Hofferman. And I still, I remember the first bird I ever saw, and I, I remember the first bird uh, that I was able to call in for him. Uh, we caught, we got a couple of jakes at the same time. And, and this year, I can remember in the A season, I had seven different opportunities in, in two days. And on every one of them, Bill, I had to check my Fitbit to see if my heart was still in, in the right range because I got excited every time I saw these birds or had close encounters. That is such a feeling. You know, it's you know, the pulling the trigger. Ah, oh, that's fine. Well, but it's that, it's that anticipation before. Uh, all these things can happen. Oh, am I going to get a shot? Should I take the shot now? Should I wait? It, all that anticipation and it builds up, and really, truly, I I love that part of it. Well, and and th- that's a, that's a neat part of it too, Mike. And and I'll grant you, and and I'll go one step further and say that the you you strive, and I don't know how to explain it. I tried to earlier, but pulling the trigger is what your 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 ultimate goal is and to get a bird and fill your tag i walk up to the tag and it's there's a lot of adrenaline pumping just like you say and if I, if personally if i ever quit getting excited it's time it's time to stop oh 104 and i i walked up to it and i'm looking down at the ground right where this bird fell and i'm thinking how beautiful it is and how gorgeous the sheen on the feathers are reflecting in the sun and just how it came in, I'm replaying all this in my mind over and over again. And this one I actually shot and killed. And and then it's kind of a bummer. It, it's it's exciting, but for me, it's kind of it's very anticlimactic. And one of the things is I'm thinking I got to carry this thing back to the car. <laughs> you are you are you five miles back in again, Bill? I'm a long way back. <laughs> I'm along. Thank goodness Eric had seen me from the road, and he was not hunting yet, and he walked out oh. as I'm standing around this bird <laughs> and wondering how I'm going to do it. Because the last time was the only selfie I've ever taken, and that was just to prove to people when I passed away that at one point <laughs> I was alive. Well, thank goodness uh, we had that foot or two of snow up in the Black area. Because I, I hoofed it out like a deer. I drunk it on the snow. It was pretty easy. <laughs> we talked to the landowner, and he went back to look for his dog leash because when he gets a bird, he just hooks it onto a dog leash and drags oh. it on the ground. <laughs> and I can't do that. <laughs> oh, um, but it was, 
you know, it, it, it's fun. And, and Eric, uh, I, he enlightens me. And that's one of the things you'll never quit learning things when you're a field or in your, when you're in the boat fishing, too. It's the same way. But he had uh, in my turkey vest, there's a pouch in the back of it. And he just tucked this bird in the back of the pouch while I was walking, kind of uh, leaning back like I was going uphill forever. So if I hunched forward, I made it all the way back to the car on one on one stop. Well, a couple of years ago, trying to haul it back from this same area, it took me about two hours because I had to stop and rest and pant. So this was it was a much better deal, and I learned that too. Well, it's a it's um, a good it's good exercise, Bill, and uh, you'll be a better man for it. Thank you very much. Hey, this evening we've got a number of guests, and as you had, if you hadn't guessed, one of the topics will be turkey hunting. Because we'll be joined by Mark Strand, the editor of Midwest Outdoors. Uh, we're also going to be soon get joined by DNR Commissioner, Mr. Tom Landweir. And we've got an important topic to broach. And that, I think, that I hope that the listeners will be informed and make good decisions and maybe even help out a little bit. Because there is a role you can play. And later in the program, we're going to switch the conversation up to fishing with one of my favorite fishing guests, and that would be Mr. Tommy George. So we're here for the duration until the 9 o'clock hour. It's Fan Outdoors, and it's all about the outdoors, and it's coming for you, and hopefully you can glean some information for it. And if you already know everything we're talking about, just smile, sit back, and enjoy, okay? Sounds great. Mike Curry is in studio, so the uh, Bradshaw Bryant inbox is wide open at booth at kfan.com. Or give us a call, 800-320-5326, anywhere we can be heard, or 651-989-5326. We're going to take a pause, and we will be back with Department of Natural Resources Commissioner, Mr. Tom Landwehr, next on Fan Outdoors. This is Fan Outdoors. I still feel 25. 20 minutes after the hour of 7 o'clock. We're trying to reach the commissioner right now, and we'll keep working on that. But in the meantime, um, you know, one of the things that I am hearing out in the field, and Mike, maybe you did too, because there's more and more of these birds up in uh, the Malacca area, and that's I'm hearing lots and lots of roosters crowing in the mornings early and on into the morning, and that's... In my mind, that's pretty good news. I've never seen uh, so many roosters uh, in Mille Lacs ever. It was, uh, like I said, I, I, we saw two fighting when that uh, snow was just about ready to melt off. You could see in, in any patch of, of any green grass, there, it was full of deer. The pheasants were there. Uh, I thought you were going to say sandhill cranes because they're everywhere right now. The trumpeter swans have been around. I've never seen mother nature wake up so fast in all my life well you know and it's kind of interesting if you look out at, at nature too things are changing the species are kind of changing because 
when you were younger, and I know when I was younger, I had never seen a sandhill crane. In fact, the first time I even heard one, I was out by Frankie DeSanka, Frankie's Marine, and we were on some property that Frankie owns on an early goose hunt. And I heard the uh, the gurgle of the sandhill, and I thought some prehistoric critter was coming out of the bushes. I mean, it's just a that deal. And our, our next guest is uh, ready to join us. I believe we have located him, and I'll just preface before I make the introduction that he will be delighted to know of all the rooster pheasants that we are seeing, <laughs> because I know he is an avid, avid pheasant hunter. And he would be the Department of Natural Resources Commissioner, Mr. Tom Landweir. Tom, thanks for coming on, sir. My pleasure. I, I hope I can gurgle like a sandhill. <laughs> <laughs> they have an interesting call, don't they? They do. It's it's a, it's actually kind of a fun one to emulate. You know, it's uh, it's just one of those floaty ones you can do. Well, go, well go I ahead. can't. <laughs> go ahead, get a shot. <laughs> you know that's pretty good, <laughs> and you can hear that's that for good. miles. Yeah. Well, I don't know if Tom wants to be heard for miles, but he just was. So it's. I think he does tonight, though, for sure. <laughs> Commissioner, I know that there you've got something pretty important on your mind, and I know it has to do with uh, with the legislature too, doesn't it? Well, of course, any time the legislature's in session, you know, that's that's on our mind. And uh, certainly it is this year, you know, the the, uh, the tendency, the, the nature of the legislature is in odd number of years, they do the biennial budget and they do the policy stuff. Even numbered years like this is when they pick up their bonding requests. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, we uh, at the DNR, we have uh, a lot of... Um, what we call assets that are bondable, things like buildings and roads and trails and bridges and so on. And so this is an important year for us to go to the legislature, get some money to uh, take care of those things, including hatcheries as well. Well, and the legislature's running out of time, are they not? They have roughly two and a half weeks left, I guess, uh, uh, before they have to finish, and uh, they have a lot of work to do. It it seems like this is uh, not unusual um, to be close to the end of the session, still have a lot of work to do. Well, and I, I think that people don't realize, Tom, the the assets the DNR has, and if if people just look down at, they take for granted that these things that just are stamped DNR are always going to be here for their enjoyment and their use, and a lot of the things that they make extreme use of, but. They do need care, and they need upkeep, and they need other things too. Well, you're you're right, and I you know I, I always hasten to remind people that you know they don't belong to DNR. We take care of them, but they really belong to you know everybody Correct. in Minnesota. You know, we've got 66 state parks. You know, we kicked off this bonding session with a, a media deal up at Jay Cook State Park in front of a porta potty because there is no running water at Jay Cook right now. The water main broke. Uh, people are having these porta potties and, and bottled water. So, you know, those kinds of things that you and I and our friends use uh, all year long, uh, you know, we're responsible for maintaining, but the money uh, initially starts with the legislature. 
Well, and the, the the water that you mentioned is in there, the buildings especially, and campgrounds, uh, the public water accesses that are going to be, you know, next weekend they're going to be in high demand, and all those need need care and need upkeep. Absolutely, and and speaking of next weekend, hatcheries. You know, we've got a number of hatcheries yep. that, you know, they they're not used for a long portion of the year you know we collect eggs right now you know we raise the fry but there's just a lot of moving parts to a hatchery as you can imagine a lot of water moving around a lot of potential for contamination and so on and so very intensive operations require constant constant maintenance and upkeep well commissioner a lot of these facilities are just uh literally just been worn down over the years and i know they've been literally bailing wire and chewing gum sometimes just to keep them together but why haven't they been fixed sooner has it all been always been about money well, it is always about money. I think, you know, the department has to take some responsibility here. You know, when I started, we didn't even have really a good inventory of the assets that the state managed, and we had no idea about how much money was needed to take care of it. And so we would, you know, every time we had a crisis, we'd go and we'd get money and we'd patch it up, like you say. But when we finally conducted an inventory in 2015, we found out that, we manage three billion, that's billion with a B, dollars worth of built assets. So some 2,700 buildings, you know, 600 miles of paved trail. We've got 1,500 public water accesses, you know, a number of uh, bridges and forest roads, as I mentioned. And so we, we did that inventory. We also did a condition assessment that we called it uh, in conjunction with other agencies and found out that, you know, we've got uh, a $330 million deferred maintenance backlog so that's you know if you had a house that's stuff that you should have done you know last year and is is needing doing now so we now have a good sense of what we are managing we have a good sense of what we need to put into it on an annual basis and now when we go to the legislature we can say you know this is the number we need and here's why we need it our guest is dnr commissioner mr tom landweer tom when people are out hearing our conversations right now over the air is, are the, is there anything they can do to assist other than just be aware? Well, you know, it's, the nature of the legislature is that, you know, the things that are important to them are the things that they hear from their constituents about. And so, you know, what we're doing right now, you know, what I've been doing for the last few weeks is is reminding people who care about the outdoors that these things, you know, don't just uh, take care of themselves. They don't just have fairy dust we sprinkle on it. We need the legislature to support these things. And so, absolutely, you know, let your legislator know that, you know, hunting and camping and fishing and uh, biking and, you know, all the outdoor recreations are important to you. And we have to keep investing in those if we want to continue to have, you know, really exceptional quality opportunities we've got. When you're mentioning the the hatcheries, too, next weekend is a prime example, and there's a, a really good chance fish that people catch next Saturday and beyond will have been hatched and beginning to be reared in a Department of Natural Resources hatchery. Well, we're very fortunate that we've got a lot of, you know, just really outstanding natural walleye habitat. We've, you know, done some estimates that about 15%, 1-5% of the walleyes that people catch probably came from a hatchery, but many lakes that you catch walleyes in are not naturally producing lakes, and so if you catch a walleye in some of those lakes, that's that's where it came from. It came from a hatchery. And, and, and I'm similar, sitting on the banks of one right you know. now. I'm sorry? Yeah. 
and I'm sitting on the banks of one right now because there's very little natural reproduction and the walleye fishing is very good. And it's because of the hatcheries and the the, the fry that are put in the body of water. You bet. Absolutely. And, and trout as well, you know, is, our stream trout fishing is uh, supported in part by stocking, uh, musky uh, angling, obviously. And you think of our sturgeon recovery, you know, on the border and in the St. Croix and so on. That's all been in large part because of hatchery fish. Are you, uh, I know that you're a pheasant hunter and you're an upland hunter, Tom. Are you a turkey hunter also? You know, I, I love to turkey hunt. I used to go virtually every year. But turkey hunting is on right now, and so is the legislature. And so it ended uh, up that I had I, I could, only, could only do one of them, and the boss says, uh, you know, I have to capital. So I, I understand that. I, I look forward to the day when I get back out there. We used to go down to and camp at Whitewater State Park and hunt in Whitewater WMA and, you know, just fully immerse ourselves for five days, and that was just a blast. Well, that brings well, up another good point right now, Tom, too, is all the public land uh, issues uh, that are out there. And I, I know I hunt on a WMA and uh, harvested birds. My buddies do. Uh, and But there's issues there going forward, too. Well, there's been concern from a handful of people at the legislature that, you know, that would assert that the state, the state owns too much land. And, you know, we've taken a lot of time to explain you know, why the state owns what the state owns, um, you know, how it's being managed, how it's a benefit to the people of the state of Minnesota. And, in effect, if you go to our webpage, mndnr.gov, right on the front there's a link that takes you to our public lands page. And, and you know, that really kind of bubbled up last year, and we uh, put some information out. And, you know, the the uh, the constituents, the citizens of the state of Minnesota, really got riled up and, contact the legislature and said, you know, these are our public lands, not DNRs, and uh, we value them and uh, and stop uh, stop trying to get rid of them. And, and so, so far this year, it's been very, very quiet at the Capitol in terms of any policy on uh, state lands. And, and as you probably know, a week ago, there was a big uh, rally at the Capitol by the organizations in support of uh, public lands. And so I think we've turn that corner a little bit, but, you know, as with all things at the Capitol, uh, di- uh, diligence is uh, the key word. Tom, when you're getting a little long in the tooth like I am, and you drive, and I've been driving around the countryside for as long as I can, well, as long as I've been driving, and I, I look at my kids get kind of tired of me telling about what used to be here. And what was here at one time. And now the only thing that exists for wild critters to basically live in, or the majority of it, are public lands. Whether they be WPAs or WMAs, it's it's public lands for upland birds. And they they carry such a benefit because personally, again, it's just about me, and it's not always about me, but... I, I hunt almost exclusively. In fact, I can say exclusively on public lands, and without them, I don't go hunting. I just—it's that easy. Well, when you think of the, you know, the agricultural part of the state, you know, the the habitat that's out there to a large extent is public land, and and even then, you know, in many of the counties, it's like one to three percent of the land is in public ownership, so it's not a great deal of it. It tends to be very high-quality habitat. You know, both the DNR and the federal government manage for habitat quality, and so, 
uh, you know, I, I spend the majority of my time on public lands as well, and I, I feel like I have very good success, uh, both uh, pheasants and ducks and, and geese, and, uh, you know, occasionally we'll go out for deer and, as you mentioned, turkeys. So uh, we are very fortunate. You know, the, the private land still has to contribute uh, substantially to wildlife populations, even in the agricultural part of the state. And, you know, to some extent we depend on the farm bill, the federal farm bill, to do that through programs like the Conservation Reserve Program, which is, uh, you know, actually under consideration right now. I understand that the governor's fishing opener is alive and well, and the ice is off the lake. So next week it's going to be a fun time. We are so happy the ice came <laughs> off. I don't know if you remember 2013, we were up in Park Rapids. The ice literally went out the Friday night before the Saturday opener. So uh, we're happy we don't have to worry about that. Nobody's happier than, happier than I am, Commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> Commissioner Tom Landweer, thank you, sir, for your time, and more importantly, thank you for what you do and for all of the agency. I don't think people realize the dedication and the sweat and the tears that go into everything that uh, that the people do for the DNR. So for that, I thank you, and I thank them. Once well, again, thank, thank you, you very sir. much. That's Commissioner Tom Landweir for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. Um, and I know of what I speak to because it's a passion. It's a profession, but it's more importantly, it's a passion for what these people do, and they are professionals. We'll take a pause, and we're going to switch the conversation up to some turkeys with a guy that talks turkey very well. In fact, he just took some or a, a young lady out, and they scored a bird. So it's going to be fun. That's Mr. Mark Strand. Got questions? Turkey questions? I've got some. You can chime on in if you want, if you've got turkey questions too. So hold on. We'll be back with Mark Strand next on Fan Outdoors. <laughs> night fan outdoors coming your way on the fan yep and it's uh, setting up to be a really nice evening it was only about 70 71 degrees up here in central minnesota today and i'm told it was much warmer than that a little bit muggy in the twin cities and i guess that we've missed spring we're just moving right into summer mike curry is in studio sitting in the big chair so he's got Eyes on the uh, Bradshaw and Bryant inbox at booth at KFAN.com if you are so inclined. Let's welcome into the conversation our next guest because he is the editor of Midwest Outdoors. He is a turkey hunter extraordinaire, and he just successfully finished filming a hunt that he had done the scouting on, and he had taken the lady out there, and let's hear all about it. Mark, good evening, sir. Hey, Billy. Hi, Mike. How are you guys? I'm pretty good. How's Mike? I don't know. I am I am goblin good. So Mike was settled too far into the big chair, I guess. I guess ready? so. <laughs> <laughs> he's, got his, 
He got I'm, his feet up and I'm, bonbons. I'm thinking turkeys. I got to think what I'm doing tomorrow morning. What am I going to do? Is the wind going to be really? blowing? Okay. Oh yeah. yeah, I'm I'm all fired up, man. Same here. And uh, hey, Bill, are you talking about the the hunt that we did that that was uh, that we made the video out of, or the one that just was on Tuesday, or the, which one? I just want to make the sure. one just on Tuesday. The the one the video that you had done the video on that. Uh, congratulations on that. It was really fun to watch, man. But you yeah, had so, another uh, you had another good one this week. Yeah, that was on Tuesday. So Monday, uh, yeah, Monday night. Now to, to backtrack just a little bit. We were, uh, we being the, the volunteers with the, uh, National Wild Turkey Federation chapter, uh, East Metro Full Fans here in Woodbury. We do a thing every year at the Cabela's store where we just basically set up a table and talk turkey hunting with anybody that wants to talk about it and kind of walk through the store and help them pick stuff out and all that. And, uh, Kevin Hurst, who's a, a friend of ours and a, and a, a really great turkey hunter originally from Missouri himself. He introduced me to Bill Lunn, who you guys will will know. He's a, a television newscaster. Was with uh, KFCP Channel Five, and then you know anchoring yeah. the news. And uh, so he and his sons are really really into turkey hunting. They've been hunting them for about eight years, I think. And the hunt was with was Bill's hunt actually, and his girlfriend Jamie was with us as well. And um, it is a great story. And there's there's some uh, instruction in there in terms of really uh, what it takes to call turkeys. And if you guys are interested in hearing that story, yeah, yeah. So we on Monday we went to this farm and he had hunted it a couple times this year. And and there it's been good to him in the past. But as you all know, it was was winter and then it's now it's summer. You know, so the, the. the turkeys hadn't been doing very much, and they were they were starting to kind of wake up a little bit. But we went to look things over that afternoon, and we saw a pretty good-sized tom out in the field right as soon as we pulled in. Uh, and we watched him in the binoculars for a little while, and then we went and looked at the other side of the road. He has the farms on both sides of the road. We end up back over uh, where the where we'd seen the gobbler right away, and he was out in this field, and we watched him for a while. We heard him gobble one time, and he uh, at one point started walking, and then he actually started running, and basically right at us. And uh, you know, I was trying to, we're trying to see what you know. We, we were partly trying to get out of there so he wouldn't see us, and then kind of watching what else was going to go on. And and here pops uh, three big toms into the same field and they show up and and one and really there's one really big bird in that we, we call them the three amigos and they that bird gobbled and he was strutting non-stop and they were headed toward this this bird and he wanted no part of that and so he was he was being run out of that field by the other three so we watched that happen we tried to roost turkeys the rest of that night, which is another story, but we, we didn't get any birds to, to gobble on the roost, so we weren't sure because we, we didn't hear anybody fly up either, so we weren't sure where they went. But the next morning, we went right back there, and as we're walking in, we can see a, a, a turkey, and you can tell it's a cobbler, it's so big, right in the tree, right on the edge of that same field. So we went around him and went and sat in a couple little blinds that are very lightweight that set up quickly, and we popped them up. And we sat along the hedgerow right where the three big turkeys entered the field the, the evening before. 
thinking that, you know, maybe we could, we could get something going on. So calling to the roosted turkey. So I'm getting a pretty clear sense of what, who he is and, and how he lives. He would gobble to us, but not, not loud. And if you, there's a thing that we've talked about many times before called soft gobbling. So he wanted us to hear him gobble, but he didn't want the other Toms to hear him gobble. <laughs> so I got this sense that, you know, he, he's probably not going to come up here because we were sitting up there where the big turkeys had entered the field the night before. So we, we, what we watched and waited for this to take place for probably 45 minutes or an hour. And then we, we decided to make a move. So, uh, it was really a team effort. Bill knows the lay of the land real well. And he let us, I, I asked him, do you have a way that you can get us around? Uh, I want to get back in where he is. Um, and, and, and he, he said, yep, I'm going to go right down this old driveway and we're going to, we're going to have to climb this hill. But when we get to the top of the hill, we'll be right at the backside of the, the pasture. And I knew what it was because we'd been back there the, the, the night before. So we worked our way back up in there, got right to the edge of the pasture. I called to the turkey. He gobbled immediately. He was right down in the, in the, like, southeast corner of the, of the field. And as we were all getting things ready, and this would be uh, uh, typical of that bird's behavior and other birds that are like him, he came right to us, but he didn't say anything. And literally within a couple minutes, he was standing right there in range. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, I'm standing. I'm, I was standing up all the way, standing up behind my video camera, and I had to wait until his head went down. He was pecking at the grass a little bit, and I got down and got over the video camera. And then Jamie has. She was really good in the woods and stuff. She, uh, she could still see the turkey. I couldn't see it anymore after I sat down. She said, "No, he's coming. He's coming. He's coming." So we just waited him, waited for him to get in to where I could get him on the camera, got him tight on that camera and, you know, let Bill know that it was okay to shoot. And he shot the bird. So that was, but I, I want to point that out because there's a couple things that work there. <clears throat> Probably the most important of which is to understand that not all these turkeys are exactly the same. This was not an aggressive turkey at all, but it was a big one with a big long beard. It was a three-year-old Tom with long, sharp, hooked spurs but it's not a dominant personality bird. So you have to get close to him, which is, which is probably true of pretty much all other turkeys in, uh, yeah, on most days, and call to him and don't expect him to do too much gobbling on his way in. So just be watching, watching, watching. The second thing that I think is really important is that you have to listen to these turkeys when they, when they answer back to you how soon do they answer? How, how enthusiastically do they answer? What do they sound like they're, they're, they're up for? You know, do, do you want to ratchet it up and get them really worked up? Or does it seem like this particular bird might uh, react better to uh, backing off just a little bit? So there's, there's so much to turkey hunting. But th this was a classic example of getting, to, getting a quick understanding of this turkey and what it would take to get him. Is Mark? Is this when you're talking about the the timid bird or the the bird that it doesn't want to get his tail kicked in? Is that when a bird gets hung up, or is that something different? Turkeys can get hung up 
for a variety of reasons. And so you, uh, you would have to know the circumstances. And, and speaking of that, uh, Billy, you put me in touch with John Peterson, he, a guy that we both know. Mm-hmm. And, and he was having problems with hung up turkeys as well. <clears throat> and we talked for, I don't know, probably 45 minutes on the phone. It was, <laughs> wasn't, yeah, it might have been last night. I think it was last night. And, uh, and he, uh, you know, gave me all the details on what was happening with the, those turkeys that he's trying to get. And uh, then after that, when we got done talking, he said, yeah, you know, I've seen exactly what you're talking about. And, you know, I got a better. So so the, the point is that I would have to know more about each situation. Okay. Because tur- turkeys hang up because <clears throat> the cover's not right. They don't want to come across a little creek or they they don't want to go under the fence or uh they've had their butt kicked there or they've got hens with them already and so they don't want to leave those hens to come to you unless you can make them you know there's a variety of reasons that a turkey is going to hang up interesting mark we have to take a pause are you okay holding with us Oh, yeah. I know I talked too too much on that first one. I thought we were out No, no, that's okay. That's interesting. It's interesting. And I've got other questions, and maybe listeners do, too. And I'm not sure about Mike. I'm sure he does also. I've always got questions, and we do have a question uh, waiting here from Roger from Elk River. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll be back. Mark Strand, turkey hunter extraordinaire, is our guest. And we're going to try to answer some questions for you, but... I want you to keep in mind what he's saying because it may not be exactly what you need and but if you gather it all together it's like an encyclopedia that you can begin using and one of the things I want to ask if Tom, if Mark had one call and only could only use one particular call what would it be what would that call be we'll ask Tom and Mark that Tom, that's what we're talking about, Tom's, and I'm asking Mark that when we come back, and much, much more. Stay tuned, we'll be right back after this. This is Fan Outdoors. Two minutes go by, and it will be 8 o'clock. Looking at the sun settle in a western sky, and it's a bright, bright ball of fire right now. It's delightful to see. After a long winter, ice is gone on this particular body of water, and it will be on a number of them, I think. Up north is another story way up north. But Mark Strand is our guest. We're talking turkeys. And, Mike, you said that uh, we have a caller on hold. We do on the Whiting, LASIK, and Eye Care Hotline. We have Roger in Elk River for a question for Mark. Awesome. All right, Mark, I was down in Missouri last week and, uh, in Rockport. So, and so was I. <laughs> oh, you were too? Yeah. Beautiful country. I'd never been down there before, but I had an opportunity to go on a hunt down there last week. And uh, I was out on... Uh, first day which was thursday and uh you're talking about turkeys getting hung up it seemed like the the hens were going to the toms okay so we were right on the river we could hear them gobbling over in nebraska we couldn't get anything to come in so you can only hunt till one so we roosted right. that night and we started we went up in the bluff out of the 
out of the flatland down there where the the farm fields were, and we roosted uh, four turkeys. There was one in the corner of a of a pasture, and there was three more a little further to the west, up on the north. So we went back in there in the morning. So we heard Tom right away. We went in there and we got we hand clocked and chirped the guy I was with. I knew the country real well. And then all of a sudden we heard a head. He wasn't but 50 yards from him. I couldn't, you know. And then we heard him turn toward us. And how far were you from the roosted gobbler, would you say? I would probably say we were probably about 200 yards. We're probably about 200 yards because when he turned toward us, you could hear him first gobble the first time. He was gobbling away from us. And then he gobbled the second time in the roost. He was looking right at us. We could hear it. Dif- yep. Way different. And then the other ones were gobbling up to the north. So we heard the hen clucks. So the guy I was with, uh, the, he was a guide, and he started chirping at the hen. And I think this was key that... He clucked at her, and I've never seen this before, but he took his hat off his head, and he did uh, fly down real quick. Boom, 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 boom. So it was, it was at fly down time, yeah, and he, well, uh, and are you about 100, and, so you're about 150 yards from the hen, too? That Yeah. So we're okay. competing with the hen and the gobbler. So we flew down the hen. We never heard the hen fly down. But that gobbler walked out. I took that gobbler. He came right up to us. And I think that the fly-down, the early fly-down technique that the guide used was key in because the hen was still up in the tree. So what do you you think about that? I mean, is that – so I've never seen that before. And I've hunted in Wyoming and Minnesota several times, but – we hunted two days after that, and we couldn't get the toms off the hens. The hens were so hot and heavy. Yeah, no, uh, the, the you know replicating the sound of a turkey flying down with your hat, or you know they they make things. I remember my mom actually made a bunch for us when you know back in like the early '80s, where you a couple little dowels and some some fabric where you could pull it apart from each other, make sounds like a turkey flying down. You know. That can work really well it, it, if it, if you're really super tight to the turkey, though you wouldn't want to do that necessarily because you know the, the, they're pretty sharp with their ears and they can they can tell that you know why is the turkey flying down when it's already on the ground you know so you know the thing doesn't uh, compute with them. But the first thing I would say that that congratulations on getting the turkey that that's really number one. Uh, the thing that occurs to me that you guys could have done, but I don't know what the terrain was like where you were hunting, is get closer to the roosted turkey. Like if you can, if you can nail down where this bird is roosted, um, and, and by the way, we've talked about this before too, but the most important piece of information you can have in addition to exactly where that turkey is roosted is where did he fly up from? In other words, what direction from the tree? Because almost every time they're going to pitch out of the tree and land about where they flew up from the previous night. So you got lots of different directions from that roost tree that you could set up on, and your odds go up greatly if you sit on the side that he's most likely to fly down to. So get 
as close as you comfortably can to the roost. And this is particularly true during the height of the breeding season one. And, and turkey hunters are familiar with this, this uh, situation. Uh, gobble, gobble, lots of gobbling on the roost. You can hear hens cutting and yelping and whatever. Uh, the turkeys all fly down and they get silent. It's quiet because they're all together now and they don't really need to call as much. And, and in a lot of cases, you can get the turkeys to answer you or whatever you want to call it, but they're not likely to come to you because they are with the hands. There are strategies that you can use to, to counteract that. But the, the bottom line in most situations is you got to get close to turkeys in order to to uh, to consistently call them to you. It takes a more motivated turkey to come 200 yards. Thanks, Roger, for the question. Appreciate it. Yes. Uh, Mark, when if you could just do one call, is it possible to hunt turkeys if that's all you had available to you? Yeah, but can we? Can I have two? I was thinking about that because I heard you say that. <laughs> <laughs> you give him a piece yeah. of candy and he wants yeah. always <laughs> another one. I want, I want the whole. I don't want the whole bag, but I want two of them. So, <laughs> all right, which the, two? Yeah, in the springtime. In the springtime, uh, the two most important calls, and it's always going to be this way, is yelping and cutting. Uh, all turkeys yelp, and they they yelp in different ways for different reasons but you can do so much you know if you had to have only one it would probably be yelping but yelping mixed with cutting which is also putting or some people call it clucking or you string together a bunch of uh, putts is what they really are but um, one thing is when you start talking about putting then um Sometimes the hunters think that you're you're telling them to do alarm putts, which is you know we're not saying that, but the uh, uh, putting or 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 cutting, which is a whole bunch of putts put together, cutting and yelping mixed together is the most deadly string that you can use in the spring. You can hmm. call turkeys all the time uh, doing that. Um, in but I, I got to say this too, and 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 I feel like we say it every time but it's still not very well understood that there is a difference between the yelping of a hen and the yelping of a tom or a jake and if you gobbler yelp at the turkeys it works wonders when they don't respond to hen calling and it's so crucial it 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 works all year long. See, here's the thing. 365 days a year, gobblers will come to each other when they're gobbler yelping at each other. And there's a very small time frame during the spring breeding season when gobblers will come to hen calling. And so uh, for whatever reason, uh, and it's classic, in the, the people who hunted the first week in Minnesota this year sitting out there in, you know, crunchy, uh, you know, leftover snow, um, Hen yelping is not likely to be as effective as gobbler yelping is on those birds. And, and I know we've talked about that before, but it's just crucial. And so the, the thing to do is start out perhaps with hen yelping and cutting. And if, if you're just not getting the results that you want, especially on any given turkey, switch.
switch over right away to gobbler yelping and see what kind of a reaction you get from that same what's turkey. what's the difference between hen yelping and gobbler yelping mark okay so the hen yelping my my turkey vest and all my stuff is out in my truck i just realized right now i think i've got <laughs> it sounds like this yeah um, <laughs> So the, the most important thing to, to know is that when it, it's the difference is the rhythm of the calling and the um, hen yelping is faster in rhythm and each note is shorter in duration. Gobbler yelping, it's subtle, but each individual note is longer. In other words, it lasts for a longer amount of time and it's just kind of more drawn out. And it's not necessarily true that one's high pitched and one's low pitched because just like our voices get high pitched when we get excited or we get aggravated or something, that can happen with, you know, big, big old gobbler yelping at you. If you get him all excited, it's real common for their voice to get high pitched as well. Mm. So I can, I can just do it with my mouth a little bit. So the, when the hen is yelping, Okay. It sounds yeah. like that. It sounds like, you know, uh, it's a pretty regular rhythm, uh, and, and but that's true of the gobbler as well. But then when the gobbler starts yelping, it's longer notes that are more drawn out. Interesting. That's what the gobbler sounds like. They know the difference. So you think to yourself, well, I'm not going to, you know, this isn't going to work. And then you do it, and then, and then you get a different. I get reactions to turkeys from doing that where sometimes you, you can't get this, this gobbler to come to you when, when you're hand calling. He'll gobble to it, but he stays out there, you know, 100 yards or 125 yards or 80 yards or how, whatever the number is. And then you start gobbler yelping at him. And I've, I've seen them just, their head turns red. They get all irritated. They need to know who you are. And I've had them come running at me. <laughs> you know, their beard is swinging from side to side and everything because, you know, here comes this boy turkey that he doesn't know about. And he needs to know who you are. Get this taken care of. And, and, and it can completely change your fortunes. Huh. Can, so I would say almost almost say that that's the most important thing is understanding the difference between hen yelping and gobbler yelping and use it when you're hunting. Mark Strand is our guest talking turkeys. Tom, is it are, are turkeys a creature of habit? If you see them doing, if you're scouting or something, you see them doing the same thing on multiple days. Is that kind of a pattern, or is it just happenstance? As long as a lot of things remain the same, they can be somewhat patternable, but they're not as patternable as, for example, deer. The, the, the turkeys will do, uh, they're patternable except when they're not. Is the way to think of it. <laughs> you, know, like you, 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 uh, you watch this, you know, you watch a, a gobbler, uh, pitch off the roost three days in a row and he always goes away from you and heads out into the countryside. So on the fourth morning, you finally got him figured out. You're already figuring what kind of sauce you're going to dip it in and all that. <laughs> and you're, you're in the right spot. And then he decides to pitch off the opposite side on the fourth morning. Sometimes that can be because he saw you move. He heard you or something like that. But uh, th that, and that's just one example of something that they might do differently from one day to the next. <clears throat> and then I always say this, it's authentic sounding 
excited turkey talk. It, that's the only thing that can get turkeys to change their travel plans. You can almost make them do something that they otherwise wouldn't do if you weren't there calling at them. Hmm. So you got to be excited with your calling. You have to really sound like you want to be there and you want them to come over by you. That's so crucial. And Mark, when do you cut that off, though? Is there's a point in time where, uh, whether whether you switch to a mouth call, but you've got them excited, you you know they're on the way, do you keep the excitement up? Yes. Yeah, it's exactly, um, you you don't want to, and and I always draw parallels between hunting and fishing. If you have a fish on on the hook, you keep the line tight, right? You don't say, all right, I pretty much got this fish, and then just let the line go slack because there's a better chance he's going to get off. There's a better chance that the turkey is going to lose interest somehow, going to stop coming, etc. Despite what people will say when they say, as long as you, when you when you first get a turkey started in your direction and he's gobbling, he's coming toward you, don't call anymore. That's what you hear all the time. That you know, let him hunt for you. It's, if you call him too much, he's not going to come. And that's absolutely not true. If you get the turkey excited, keep him excited. And we've talked about this before, too, but when a turkey's coming into you, would you rather have the turkey slinking and looking at every stick on, and leaf on the ground for any sign of movement? Or would you rather have a turkey that's just about choking because he's gobbling so much and he's spinning back and forth in the woods, showing his tail fan to every direction that he can. We call those tilt the world toms when they're coming <laughs> through the woods like that. They are so fired up that they don't even see you when you go to move your gun and get it into position and stuff like that. So, um, and you guys know this too. I always say that and my, my mentor in turkey hunting is a guy named Ray I from the Missouri Ozarks. And his saying is, stop calling as soon as you shoot. And you can even call a little bit more if you feel like it. <laughs> Mark, before we let you go, Ray has a uh, a turkey university that people, especially new hunters or hunters with questions that we haven't answered, can, uh, can sign up for, doesn't he? Yes. Thanks for bringing that up. It's called Calling is Everything, but it's not just about calling. It's, it's all phases of turkey hunting, and it is at – we used to have it at a place called eyesontheoutdoors.com, but that website is not active anymore. We all got too busy, and we couldn't maintain it. We moved Ray's hunting class over to midwestoutdoors.com. So if you just go to midwestoutdoors.com and search for the, the Calling is Everything class, you'll find it there. It's, it's hours and hours. I think there's like 22 hours of – Ray Eye on video with phenomenal video of actual hunting scenarios and him talking over the top of them. He literally dumps out everything that he knows about turkey hunting. It's just, it's, it's like a, a work based on his whole life of hunting and it. There's nothing like it. Midwest Outdoors is the website. Eyes yep. on the Outdoors is no, what you're looking Midwestoutdoors.com for. Midwestoutdoors.com is the website. And you search right. for calling is everything. Got it. Got it. Yep. I got it. Okay. And uh, even if I don't, our listeners are much smarter than I am. I, <laughs> I don't know about hey, that. But. 
<laughs> Mark, I thank you so much. We got to do this again, buddy. Even you know, I, know. I love talking turkeys. And, I got a uh, lot of so much coming learn. up too, so um, let's plan on it. Okay, we'll do that. I'll get. Great I'll, I'll you give guys. you a call, my friend. Thank right. you. That's Mark Strand and uh, turkey hunting. There's a lot to know, uh, but don't be intimidated. Go out and have fun. I mean. Turkeys sometimes don't sound like the recording. Sometimes they, in fact, if you listen to a bunch of different ones, they all sound different. And uh, with a little luck, that's what I had. It was a lot of luck. And uh, I managed to uh, to get put my tag on one. As did Mike Curry, but he's better than I am. So that's no, right. no, no. I was. Uh, it's better be lucky than good. And, and and when you're in the right spot at the right time, good things happen. That's very true. Hey, we're going to take a pause again, and we're going to switch it up to fishing. That's right, fishing, open water fishing. I was in a boat today. Mm-hmm. I'm jealous. It, had, it was 12 feet long. It had a 15 horse. It was built in 1953. And I learned to fish out of that boat, and I was fishing in it again today. Still got some fish in it, although I didn't catch them. No, Eric and Danielle did. Dandies, too. We'll talk about that with Tommy George next on Fan Outdoors. This is Fan Outdoors. minutes after the hour of 8 o'clock on a very, very nice evening. The wind has died down. What was ice about eight days ago is now soft water and it is calm. And let's welcome into the conversation. In fact, actually in the conversation, Mike Curry is in the big chair back there, so he's manning the bad Bradshaw and Bryant inbox. And our next guest is one of my favorite. I always love to talk fishing with this man. Pro Angler, Mr. Tommy George. Tommy, good evening, my friend. Billy, how are you? Not bad, buddy. I'm a whole good. lot better now that the ice is gone, man. <laughs> exactly, you're right. Uh, uh, hi to you, too, uh, Michael. How are you? I'm doing. I'm doing really good. I'm. Uh, I'm itching to get to open water myself too. And uh, now that Bill's got his, we both got our turkeys. Uh, well, I'm going to be doing a little bit of turkey hunting this weekend, uh, showing a few people. But I really want to get uh, get to open water fishing. Yeah, what a what a change! I mean, everybody was worried about uh, not being able to get their boats out. And I'll tell you what, I was out today and yesterday, and the ice on this lake I fished only went out three days ago, and it is amazing. It's, I mean, it's uh, it was the the water temperature was forty five yesterday, what? And, and it was forty five degrees when I put the boat in, and I I went down into a little bay on the north end, and on the north end of the lake, it was. 57 degrees. Wow. It Come on. 12, yes. It was 12 degrees warmer, and it, it, was, a, it was a turkey shoot. It was crazy <laughs> in there. It was not. Wow. Oh, it, I mean, that's what uh, you tell people to look, go to the north end because the warm water is always going to be, you know, shifting down that way from the south, to the warmer south winds. And I'll tell you what, it was a turkey shoot. Like I said, it was just, it was so much fun. 
and it's it's here. Tommy, we got on the lake today, and I have no idea what the water temperature was because the boat we were in was minted in 1953. <laughs> I heard that, yeah. <laughs> Do you have a color selector uh, with you too, Bill? What's that? Did you have your color selector with you too? Oh yeah, that all oh, that's all the good stuff. Um, hey, I could tell you what it did have, but it had two anchors, and I was in charge of one of them, and that's about all I did. Um, but we did, I should say, Eric and Danielle caught some crappies, and they were gorgeous. And the ice was on that body of water this morning. Isn't it? And fun? it doesn't take long. Did you, um, were you fishing by bulrushes or old uh, dead dead uh, uh, weed beds or anything like that? It, it was a flat that breaks in about eight, nine feet of water, and there was green weeds on the edges of it. Oh, wow. And, and I think, you know, we didn't catch a lot of them, but what we caught were, I mean, they were big fish in my eyes anyway. They were 14, 15-inch crappies. <laughs> Those are giants, trust me. Oh, my goodness gracious, it was so neat. Yeah, those are fun. It was very, very nice. But I was surprised that it's so so soon after ice, Tommy. I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, I know it. It's you know we always talk um, what what the opener is going to do and everything. You never know. And this year, it's probably going to be. I I was going to say it's going to be a a turkey shoot on opener too. But I think uh, the the walleyes are going to be spawned off by next weekend. And because the water temp, with the with the weather we've got coming, it really warms that water quick. And uh, the walleye start spawning in around 40, you know, 40, 42, 43 degrees. And um, they're usually done by the, you know, 48 degrees or so. So it's it's not going to be a one night thing. It'll be a week or two. So I had a friend call me just tonight, and he had he was in a dilemma. He uh, he canceled his opening weekend up uh, up by Alexandria. And he was wondering, uh, he asked me, he says, do you think the second weekend would be better? And I didn't really know. I mean, I would think that both weekends would be good. And I says, Danny, I should uh, see if you can go both weekends. Well, he couldn't. But so um, I think that opening weekend is going to be very, very good. And I told Danny, I says, fish shallow water. I says, it's going to be a shallow water bite from, you know, I wouldn't fish any deeper than 10 feet opening weekend. Just jigs and minnows. Uh, you don't want leeches at the time. You don't need uh, crawlers. Uh, just use minnows and fatheads and even crappie minnows with, with jigs and just fish shallow stuff and move uh, fish by any moving water. If you can get any by any creeks or any rivers or any moving water at all, that's where these fish are going to be. Tommy, I can uh, I can just hear the gnashing of teeth now because people were so antsy and so concerned about the ice. Now the ice is gone. Yep. And they're expecting everything to be really easy to catch, and things are never easy. No, and the, people are going to be upset with themselves and maybe us for saying that it's really easy and it's going to everything's going to be here and there. Billy, but, you're right. It's never easy. It's always it, fish do the funniest things. There's always exceptions to the rule, but uh, like I told Annie, I says just uh, start shallow. I says you know, if you go opening weekend, um, usually. Even up like on Lake Vermilion, the second weekend is usually better than opening weekend. To tell you the truth, because the fish are done spawning and they're off of their off their spawns. You can get some males on the on the beds yet, but the females 
are done, and once they're done spawning, then they put the feed bag on. It takes them a few days to kind of get acclimated again, and then they put the feed bag on, so it's really a good bite. But um, opening weekend, it's going to be a whole different thing this year. I think it's going to be a good opener. I really do. With the with the water temperature and stuff, I think you're going to have some pre-spawn fish yet. And um, if anything, you're going to catch a lot of males. And that's what he wanted. He just wanted some smaller fish for eating, and I said that's a good good plan. Tommy, usually crappies fish save the weekend for opening weekend for an awful lot of anglers. Yes, including me. And, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> I tell you what, uh, crappies save the day for a lot of people. I mean, if the walleye ain't biting, go on some of these bays, these dark black bays, and you'll have a ball with some sunfish crappies. I mean, I caught everything in this bay. I caught northerns, I caught bass, I caught perch and sunfish and crappies. I didn't catch any walleyes. I didn't expect, it, expect that. But they're probably getting set up now to, to do their ritual. But uh, I'll tell you what, it's uh, it's going to be, I still say it's going to be a good weekend because uh, the the fish should be basically spawned out, but you're going to still get a lot of males, and that's what you want. You know, a two-pound fish and two-and-a-half, maybe a three-pound fish. Well, a lot of the fish, like the crappies and stuff, they're not ready to spawn yet, are they, Tommy? They're they're in there no. eating. Yes, that's all they're doing is feeding in them in them bays. They're tired of that uh, cold, ice, icy water, and they're in them. Uh, in them warm bays, and all they're doing is eating, Billy. They're just uh, eating bugs, and I opened up some sunfish, and they were just loaded with these little bugs, little tiny critters. So um, that's what they're doing now. They don't, uh, the, the crappies don't spawn till 60, 65 degrees, and so that's a long ways away. So it's it's amazing. The, the walleye, they'll start about 40 degrees, 45 degrees, whatever. So that's going to be a real touch and go on the, on the walleyes. But so the second weekend, if Danny's listening, I, maybe the second weekend would be better because he canceled his opening weekend, and the second weekend you probably do a little better. Well, Tommy, uh, we, a lot of the lakes in Alec are going to be out, though, Tommy, too. I mean, it's, yes, we're only 25 miles from Alec, and three days ago this was solid ice. Yep, exactly. So, I know that's uh, it, that's what he was saying. He says that the, the ice is off the lake that he was going to make his reservations on, so... But he canceled because he didn't think the ice was going to be off. So uh, I think that okay. uh, I think yeah I think that the uh, uh, the second week will be outstanding. But every weekend's out good as long as you're in a boat. That's when it's you know. There you important. go. <laughs> exactly. Hey Tommy, we got a uh, question from Ron from the Bradshaw and Brian inbox, and he's saying with this late ice out, uh, what's Tommy's first color of jig and plastic that he's going to put on his line uh, this spring? And by the way, he says. The vent trick works, too. Oh, really? <laughs> See, God bless him. See, the kid knows. He listens. And <laughs> that, 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 it really does work. I'll tell you what. That's, I told Danny, I says, Danny, use bobbers and minnows and, and do that vent trick, the way you hook your minnows. And it'll keep them, them fish active. And for walleye fishing, try and get spot tail shiners if you can. Golden and silvers work, but spot tails work the best for walleyes. And then if you can't find them, get fatheads or even crappie minnows too but um uh i'm sorry what was the it was the color of the jig you're going to have on jig? first yeah the color of the jig or the or the uh or the plastics you're going to put on what what color do you start off with all the time well to tell you the truth i was fishing yesterday and today i caught all i wanted and all i used i mentioned it before i use a black fly a fly fisherman fly a, a you know a sinking fly 
the fish are just thick in these bays, and um, you can use these. I'm using a about a six foot lead with fluorocarbon uh, flor, line, excuse me, and a casting bobber, and you cast it out into the shallow stuff, and you just you can almost leave it sit because the, the flies just sink so slow, and the fish cannot leave them alone. But when when the jigs start when when you're using jigs, uh, the water should be a little warmer because they're they're not really chasing. They're just moving slow. That water's still kind of chilly. But as the water warms up, then I like 16th ounce jigs or even 32nd ounce jigs. I use, I like reds. I like uh, pinks. Uh, this is for crappies. I like pink. Uh, white's another excellent color. And black is uh, probably my last choice, to tell you the truth. But um, I like uh, the pinks, pink and white has got to be probably the number one color for crappies. And a little white twister tail or a little piece of impulse or a little piece of power bait, and it makes a big, big difference. I always have live bait with me, but once you once you start catching them on some of the plastics, you can put the live bait away. It's like you've known Billy with that impulse. It just, it's just a killer. <laughs> And it absolutely is. And some, you know, sometimes, Tommy, I'm guilty of forgetting from one season to the next things that gave me success the year before. And those, the impulse just a few years ago was so rock solid and it was unbelievable just on a, a little jig and just casting it out with a bobber and twitching it once in a while. They gobbled it up. Yeah, that's true. That's like I, I told people, you, you put a put a bobber on, you know, uh, early in the spring. You don't want this jig, and I like I like light jigs, and you, you can put a casting bobber on, just a regular bobber. Cast it out, start about four feet. If you have to go six, do that. But just you can leave it sit, Billy, like you do, or you just move it real slow. And then you get yeah. a consistent, that, that jig is moving at, at that certain depth, and you can go deeper if you want, but it's it's a true killer. And you can cast out by itself and start retrieving a jig, too, as the water warms up. If the fish hits it right away, uh, they're high. If they, if it takes a little while for for the fish to hit, you know, you're, you're reeling it slow, and, and the jig is dropping as you're reeling, and, and if you hit it about halfway down, they're probably five, eight, six, eight feet down. And other than that, if they hit next to the boat, you you know that they were really deep and they were finally chasing it. So um, you can kind of tell how deep these fish are. So it's a uh, it, it's it's a good way to find the depth of these fish too. Tommy, we have to break. Can you hold with us for a short while into the next segment? Oh, I sure will. Excellent. Tommy George is our guest, and we're going to keep him on for a while, too, because we want to get you lined up. If you're going to go out walleye fishing, do, uh, crankbaits, are they an option? There goes an eagle. Uh, are they going to be an option? <laughs> eagles are not and, an option, though, Bill. Uh-huh? Eagles are not eagles an option. Aren't? No. Well, my Brittany, I was real worried when she was a puppy, the eagle was going to come and get her, so I wouldn't let her out without me there. <laughs> Um, anyway, we've got some questions for Tommy. We'll get those answered for you on our return. There's a squirrel coming down the tree, and Belle is absolutely enamored. There's going to be barking. We'll be right back. This is Fan Outdoors. Whoa, 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 
across when we're talking about the outdoors here on Fan Outdoors. Tommy George is our guest, pro-angler Tommy George. Mike Curry is back in studio. I'm Billy Hildebrand on location, looking out at a sun that has set and reflection on from the other side of the lake on a mirror calm body of water. It's uh, very nice. Tommy, with the opener right around the corner in Minnesota, and Wisconsin's opener is coming up this weekend, correct? You're right. It is the fifth. And will the, you know, we're talking an awful lot about jig and minnow and that kind. Tommy, are crankbaits a viable option? Um, you know, not really because the fish aren't really chasing. Um, they're when when the water warms up, Billy, then they'll definitely be on on the move a lot quicker. Um, a lot of guys do like trolling. Um, they'll troll shallow stuff now at nighttime um the walleyes will always seem to move shallow and they'll put pla- uh, planer boards out or they'll um they'll troll um you know smaller crankbaits close to shoreline you can do that my i know my son ben has just pounded the the walleyes up at lake vermilion on opening and uh this is one you know one of the warmer openers um but um i think at at, at um for for crankbaits I would, I would, um, you can give it a try. Like I tell people, oh, do your, your favorite lure and whatever you have confidence in, go for it. And, um, if the jigs ain't working, I would definitely try jigs first would be my first choice and fish shallow stuff and, uh, light jigs. Um, a lot of guys like drifting. If you're going to drift, uh, put a split shot on and, um, and a, a, a hook and new minnow or whatever and get it away from the boat. Uh, the only time I use heavy jigs is when I'm vertical jigging, so it's straight down below the boat, but that's when the fish are deep. So you're not going to be doing any vertical jigging opener or whatever because it's, you know, you're going to be fishing basically shallow. So um, as far as trolling billy or, or crankbaits, you can try it. A lot of guys love throwing rapalas or salmos, uh, you know, inshore and just reeling them slow, and they will work. It's not a, You're not going to rip them. You're just going to reel them slow just to get that movement going. And so that's it is definitely an option. A few years ago when uh, Denny Fletcher here in town, the bait dealer, talked me into fishing walleyes, and I had never fished them before. In fact, I had kind of mocked and ridiculed people for doing it for years. (laughs) I I remember those remarks. (laughs) Yes, I, I I do too. And now I'm having a great time doing it. But when he when he got me started... It was with uh, just a, a bigger split shot and about three foot of line and uh, a hook and a spot tail. There you and go. Just See, exactly. dragging it behind the boat real slow. Yes. And it worked. I mean, I didn't yes. know what I was yes. doing, and I lost a lot of minnows <laughs> before I figured it out. 
<laughs> but it, it worked and it was fun. Yeah, that's a that's a real killer, uh, especially you know early season. Um, a split shot, it's, you don't want anything real heavy because it just sinks right down and in this um, you know on the bottom, and you want that minnow to stay up a little bit. And like I say, three a three foot lead is good. A four foot lead's fine. Uh, some of the bays you can fish uh, like up on Ten Mile Lake up north. Uh, we will put an eight or ten foot lead out with a split shot and just true, do it really slow and you'll load up on walleyes. Well, so Tommy, though, what's that going to feel like for a bite? When, when you're talking about loading up, is the rod going to load up, or are you? is it just a tap-tap, or you just feel heaviness? Or what, what sort of reaction you know, are you going to get? Mike, that's exactly right. You're just going to feel, sometimes you just feel a heavy, like you almost got a snag, and all you do is just lift the rod. You don't, you don't, don't want to jerk it. Just lift the rod if you feel, if you feel anything. Sometimes you'll feel... Um, if, if there's a lot of fish there, one will grab it and they'll take off on it. You know, you'll feel that thump. Um, you'll feel a good, a good strike. But most of the time when you're, when you're fishing stuff like that, you're going to just feel the rod load up. And when the rod loads up, it just the tip starts bending and you just lift a little bit. And if it, if it kind of pushes back on you, set the hook. If you're not sure if it's a weed, we always tell people, if you think it's a weed or a bite, just set the hook anyways. You don't know. So, but uh, that's the way they bite in the springtime. They're not real. They're not real savages. They're not going crazy unless there's other fish around. They'll grab something and they will run away from them fish. So, but if they're singles, uh, they'll take it real slow. Some sometimes, John Tommy, I've lost the minnow when I do that right away. But if I feed the rod back to them after I feel weight, and mm-hmm. then just sweep it forward, I can catch the fish more often than if I, I set the hook right away. Exactly. You know, uh, some some guys say that uh, you can use the counting method. Um, once you feel a bite, this is especially true when you're using like a Lindy rig or even a, a split shot. Um, if if you feel that bite uh, and you set the hook and you miss them, okay, you do it again and you feel that bite again and you, you count to five. And after the three or five or whatever, you lift it up and you set the hook. If he's if he's on, he's that's fine. You got that five five count method and sometimes you got to count to 10 especially when you're using crawlers or leeches and stuff like that but minnows they seem to take with with a jig they always grab a jig right away that's one nice thing about jigs that's why i like fishing jigs but when you're using uh lindy rigs or you're using just a, a snell um sometimes you have to wait and you know see it, the, the temperament on a fish um and sometimes they'll grab it right away and you can set the hook right away. Otherwise, you can try that counting method and see, count to five. First time, if it don't work, count to ten. And count as long as it takes to set them, you know, to get them fish eating that bait. Tommy, last question because we're running out of time again. But spot tails are magic in the spring. How come? It's what the it's what the the walleyes are normally eating in the lakes. Ninety um, percent of your shiners in the lake are spot tail shiners. And that's what these walleyes um, are are normally eating. Now your silvers and and goldens are they're in rivers, and but your spot tails are in lakes, and that's why these that's why spot tail works so well. And uh, your your other shiners can work, and they do, but they're harder to they're not as hardy as a spot tail. Spot tail shiners are pretty hardy minnows, and uh, um, red tail chubs are hardier than all of them, and they're they're very good bait too. And they're kind of spendy, but it's worth it. You know, it's, as far as I never worry about what what bait costs because you want that's what catches the fish. 
If you can Tommy find cocktails, you're going to be in good shape. Eric, my son turned me on to the Angle Cooler last year, and without a doubt, it's worth. It's expensive, but it's worth the money just from keeping your bait alive, and it's the water doesn't heat up near as fast. And yeah. what I've done is I just freeze up some well water into chunks and then break it into pieces and put it in the the cooler when it gets warmer. But it keeps Very the spot smart. tails where they would die otherwise, and there's no chlorine in the well water. Very good idea. You know, I, I basically do the same, Billy. I take um, bottles, um, juice bottles or pop bottles or anything that, you know, you can wash them out, put put yeah. uh, water in them, freeze them, and then that goes right into your into your uh, bait uh, buckets and stuff like that. It makes a world of difference. And also in your live well, too. If you, got, if you, you get a lot of minnows, you put them in a live well, you've got containers for them, you put some of that ice in there. And bottled ice works well. It keeps real well. Good idea. Good idea. Hey, Tommy, yeah. thank you, sir, for your time, and we will uh, we'll be in touch. We ought to chat again. Well, thank you, guys. I hope everybody has a, a safe opener, and, and uh, I'll let you know how we do, Bill. I please do. I look forward to that, my friend. Thanks. Uh, that is Tommy George, and he's a heck of a fisherman. We talked about getting together on the ice, and we haven't done that yet. But maybe we'll get to better in some soft water and chase some panfish because he is an excellent deep water pan fisherman. Mike, you said you're after some turkeys again this weekend? Uh, we are. We've got uh, three brand new hunters and one sophomore hunter who happened to get a turkey last year. So we've got four fairly relatively uh, inexperienced uh, or not experienced turkey hunters at all. And we're going to be uh, after them. Uh, and my buddy Jim was up there this weekend, his son's up there. And uh, they've got gobblers around. It's just a matter of uh, we put some of the things that Mark Strand uh, talked to us earlier about, uh, earlier about uh, to uh, to tassel. It's been great. We've had lots of awesome uh, close encounters, and uh, that's what it's all about. Well, you said that the birds that I was uh, not after, but the birds in my area were really quiet compared to years past when they, they get vocal and gobble a lot. And this year they were very, very quiet. And, and they, they would gobble early in the morning, and as soon as it got to the sun even began to come up, it seemed like they were getting really, really quiet, if not silent. And you mentioned that you were having the same issues. Yeah, it was the second weekend, and I'm, I'm kind of expecting that tomorrow. Um, so we're going to have to be patient. And uh, the pressure this weekend with this being the sea season, the first over-the-counter uh, license that you can get, I suspect there's going to be lots of hunters out because, well, I think the numbers were actually down for the A season this year because of the anticipated poor uh, weather opportunities. But I'll tell you what, uh, that was some of the best turkey hanging I've ever had, and you just had to be not too afraid of uh, you know getting – into some thigh deep snow and uh, going after them a little bit because it was the close encounters were just incredible. Well, Eric and Danielle also mentioned this morning when they were out that there was lots of vocalization, a lot of gobbling, and they had moved off where they started the day before. That's where I was in my season. They had moved a, a few miles away. And there were a number of birds in the area, a number of birds in the trees and coming down. A lot of those were already with hens, though. And yep. then 
Tom doesn't have much interest in any of you. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of that right now, and I'm also hearing that the wind is going to pick up tomorrow, so that'll probably change things. Where there may not be as much gobbling in the morning, but you know what we like to do is to get out there, listen, cut the distance down, and let Mother Nature take its course from there. Well, when we're thinking about fishing, too, pan fishing is right around the corner, and I know that a lot of the emphasis is on walleyes, and that's kind of the bread and butter fish in Minnesota. But pan fishing, I'm telling you what, the pan fish, the crappies that I saw being caught in 12 feet of boat today were absolute gorgeous fish, and they were really, really nice. Um, and I, I wish that I had given some thought to Tommy and what he said with using a fly and letting it slowly sink, because that might have made a difference, too. Uh, just some of those things. My problem is, Mike, I got to remember it. <laughs> well, you you are retired, and uh, um, and you can do anything you want. You just have to remember to to make those changes. Uh, well, maybe you have to have uh, a younger partner along with you, Bill. Like one who's just going to retire at the end of this coming <laughs> this month. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, my 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 mind isn't any better than yours. <laughs> and besides, I'll fall asleep in the chair later on early. If if you could see <laughs> the broadcast, my broadcast booth is. I couldn't find any paper because I had some questions. I wrote them down on a used paper plate. <laughs> because I knew I wouldn't remember. That's true radio work. Awesome. At least you didn't use toilet paper. <laughs> no, none of that. In fact, I'll go burn the plate now, actually. Uh, the music's playing. It means we are out of here, and we will give way. Well, we won't. We'll be back Saturday morning. Saturday morning, bright and early. It's a stand tequila morning, so come on along. I want to say thank you to our guests to Commissioner Tom Landweer for joining us, Mark Strand, editor of Outdoor News on Turkey Talk, and pro-angler Tommy George with Fish Talk. It's all aimed at you, everybody. we got to go. For Mike Curry, I'm Billy Hildebrand. See ya. See ya.